thinking about that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I saw uh, early this morning a pastor who made a comment online, and he said, I don't know if when I get to heaven uh, all my questions will be answered. He said, but I'm pretty sure that when I see Jesus face to face that I'll have a lot less questions. And I think that's absolutely true. Uh, We thank God for his grace and his presence in our lives now by the power of his spirit. And we look forward to being in the presence of the Lord someday forever. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. And we're going to consider today verses 7 through 10 in a message entitled, A Faithful Servant. A Faithful Servant. Our world is obsessed with leadership. According to Forbes, leadership development is a $366 billion global industry. Primary areas of focus regarding leadership include improving coaching skills, communication, employee engagement, strategic planning, business acumen, and on and on. Of course, leadership is very significant, and as you've often heard it said, uh, things rise and fall on leadership. Some people say everything rises and falls on leadership. I think that's an overstatement. But at any rate, uh, leadership is significant. Chris Westfall wrote the book Leadership Language, and he believes that much of the effort is failing in this $366 billion global industry because there's too much reflection and not enough application. Here's the point that he makes. He says, a program that forces participants to reflect on Warren Buffett, Jack Welch, or Steve Jobs might be useful for understanding what others have done before. But consider this, knowing all the rules and history of boxing isn't going to help you when you're about to get punched in the face. Now, I don't know if he's quoting from the famed philosopher Mike Tyson, or uh, he's getting that quote from somewhere else, but he makes a good point. Leadership in this context is a verb discovered in action and demonstrated in application. The Christian world also focuses quite a bit on leadership. A quick search of Christian conferences for 2021 will yield conferences like Catalyst and Christian Leadership Alliance, Leadership Live, Global Leadership Summit, and the Exponential Conference. But if you look for conferences on how to be a Christian servant, you're going to come up empty. Where have all the servants gone? What should our focus on being a faithful servant in God's church look like? The disciples had heard the demands that Jesus made on his followers. He heard them talk about the importance of not causing a little one to stumble. He, they heard him talk about the importance of confronting sin and dealing with it properly when it arose. They heard the demand to extend unlimited forgiveness based on the grace of God and the importance of exercising faith. And the disciples, in response to all of these great demands, said back to Jesus, increase our faith. They knew they couldn't do it on their own. And this section of Scripture actually encompasses verse 5 through verse 10. We looked at verses 5 and 6 
initially, uh, focusing on the faith aspect of it. And then now we're emphasizing the obedience part of it in verses 7 through 10. The faith aspect of it begins with being rooted in an internal trust in God. So we see that God is trustworthy, therefore we trust him. And it means that we express our appeal to God primarily through prayer. We lift that up to him. And then we see faith responded to and how God acts on our behalf. And sometimes I think when we see ourselves as servants of God that we get this idea that we can somehow merit divine favor as we serve God. Or uh, to state it another way, we might think we've just got a little bit of leverage on God when we serve him in the way that he wants us to. And of course, we know that's not true. We are living in the grace of God. We're serving according to the grace of God. And any good that comes from it is not because we've leveraged something on God, but simply because he has blessed us in return. Jesus teaches a very short parable here in these verses, beginning in verse 7. And he includes three rhetorical questions in which the answers are no, yes, and no. Beginning in verse 7, this is what the word of God says. Which one of you, having a servant, tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready, and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We've only done our duty. Now, the word servant here literally means someone who sets aside their own preferences and even their rights in order to serve another. The Bible has a lot to say about servanthood. Jesus Christ had a lot to say about servanthood. And Jesus, after all, is the primary focus of what it means to be a servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus modeled for us what servanthood is when he came to dwell as God in the flesh. It's hard for us from a human perspective even to properly put that in context, fully understand what that means, that the one who is the active agent in creation was willing to leave the glory of heaven and enter into the mess of this earth, the brokenness, the sin, to be tempted at every point as we are, yet without sin, to fulfill the law of God perfectly, which no person could do on their own, and to give his life as a ransom for us. This is the ultimate example of what it means to be a faithful servant. So we look to him as we hear his words and we follow his example. What does it mean to be a faithful servant? Well, first of all, a faithful servant needs the right motivation. A faithful servant needs the right motivation. Now, Jesus tells this story here of probably is what, a, what is a small farmer. I say it's a small farmer because there's only a single servant referenced in the parable. The scene begins near the end of the daytime work. Plowing was hard work. It would have tested uh, the endurance uh, and the strength of a good worker. 
Tending sheep was also hard work. And the farmers been out all day with this one servant. And at day's end, they're both tired. The farmer comes into his house, cleans up, sits down at the table, and he waits for the servant to come in, clean up, and then prepare his meal and serve him. Jesus asked the question, will the farmer say to the servant, come now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and then after that you can eat and drink? Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Here's the point. The servant was to fulfill his responsibilities before taking care of his own needs. He was to prepare the meal, serve it, wait on the one being served till they're finished eating, and then follow through on their own. This is an interesting little parable. It's found only here in Luke. It illustrates the ideal motivation that a servant should have in serving God. When we serve God, as I've already mentioned, it does not obligate God to us. We don't have some type of leverage over God where we're deserving of something. We are serving because he's called us to do this. Now, obviously, there's the difference between only serving, just going through the motions, and being a servant. And I would say that the difference between just going through the motions and actually having the heart of a servant is in motivation. It's what drives us. In other words, why are we doing what we're doing? Are we doing it for the recognition of others? Are we doing it because we think we're going to get something out of it? Are we doing it because we think that we've got God where we want him so that he'll do something for us? Or are we simply being a servant because that's our heart, that's our motivation as a disciple? Now, the Bible has a lot to say about motivations in general, not just in terms of servanthood, um, but our motivations are important. Now, it's better to do what's right even if you're not doing it for the right reason, to do what's right, even if it's out of obligation to do what's right, it's still better to do that. But you know what's even better than that? Doing what is right for the right reasons with the right motivation. And I think that's what's pictured here. Uh, Jesus speaks about hypocrisy and being careful not to seek the praise of people. Uh, He condemned the Jewish scribes for following God only for the perks Uh, He rebuked James and John for arguing about their future position in the kingdom because their motives were selfish. And we do not serve with the motivation of being recognized. Now, somebody said you can tell whether or not you're a servant by how you react when you get treated like one. It's easy to talk a good game about being a servant. I've got a servant's heart. Yes, I'm a servant. Yes, I want to serve others. And then somebody treats you like a servant. Then you find out really what your attitude is and where you're coming from in the whole deal. And I think part of this is that we live in a, in a society where uh, we have the mentality that everybody gets a trophy. And we can be tempted to do what we do because we're doing it to expect recognition just for showing up. We think that we deserve it somehow. Or we might have the attitude when we look at certain task or certain responsibilities, whether it be in the workplace or in our home or, or in church ministry. And we think that's below me. Uh, my, I, I got a higher pay grade than that. I'm not going to do that. Somebody else can do that. That's not my responsibility. And when you start thinking like that, you get in a trap pretty quickly 
and you elevate yourself above the attitude and the motivation of a servant, and you become less useful as a servant to God. And uh, I think we're to serve uh, with an attitude and motivation of worship. I think of Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your true worship. So what is God calling us to do? He's calling us, in light of his great mercies, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, to present ourselves as holy unto the Lord, to make a choice about how we're going to live, And because God has shown us this great mercy, making it possible for us to serve him, we serve in response to that. Think about the mercies of God in your life. Justification by faith because of the finished work of Jesus. The grace of being adopted into the family of God. The assurance of having right standing with God. The confidence to come before the throne of God in in prayer and to receive the grace that we need. And spiritually speaking, we're to bring our lives to the altar of God. And I think when Paul wrote Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, he understood that people in the first century would have had a good context for what a sacrifice was and the language of sacrifice. But there's a nuance when he references a living sacrifice. And the reason that that is striking is because it's pointing us to the offering of ourselves continually. It's not just a one-time deal. It's not just today. It's not just yesterday. But it's daily offering ourselves to God as living sacrifices. And the ultimate blessing of this whole thing is that while we don't obligate God, God obligates himself to us in a sense, meaning that he's promised to reward us for faithful service. God rewards faithfulness. There are many rewards in the life to come, but we miss out on understanding many of the rewards that we receive in this life. Remember Jesus said that he came to bring abundant life? We are blessed super abundantly when we're in Christ. And we ought to be mindful of those blessings as we serve God. And we ought to hope for the words that we would hear them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. That kind of motivation puts us in a position that we want to honor God above anything else recognizing that we don't deserve the blessings, but God gives tremendous blessings to us. A faithful servant needs the right motivation. Second, a faithful servant needs to be obedient. Verse 10, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do. Now, let me just encapsulate this here. Servants in that day had a very simple job description. Do what you're told to do. Wasn't complicated. Just do what you're told to do. Do what you're asked to do as a servant. Servants don't give orders. Servants take orders. And we take our orders from God. We humble ourselves in the sight of God. And if a servant came in after a long and difficult day in the field 
they didn't expect that somebody was going to prepare dinner for them. And Jesus emphasized the responsibility of servants to do what God has commanded us to do. Now, you've probably heard the uh, phrase that has come into vogue in, in recent years, do your job. The whole idea of do your job is, is echoed in a number of different circles, but it particularly came to prominence uh, with Bill Belichick's New England Patriots. What does it mean to do your job? It means to be prepared, work hard, pay attention to the details, put the team first. So that means in a football sense that you have an assignment, you follow through on what you've been told to do. The players in the trenches know what they're supposed to be doing. They fulfill their assignment. They fulfill their roles. The skilled players know what their responsibilities are, so they fulfill their assignment. They fulfill their roles. And when everybody's doing their job, the game plan gets executed, and it works in harmony. So Jesus is saying to us, essentially, as servants of God, hey, do your job. That's your, that's your assignment as a servant. Just, just do your job. Do you know that's how the church functions best? And let's bring this on a spiritual level here because each of us, when we are saved, we are spiritually gifted. The Spirit of God indwells us. He gifts us for service. And then he bears fruit in our lives as we yield up ourselves to him. And in too many churches, there are a handful of people that are doing a bunch of jobs, a bunch of people's jobs, to keep the whole thing afloat. And there's a lot of people just observing. It's kind of along for the ride. But the way God designed it is that every part of the body would do their job, that we would be prepared, that we would work hard, that we would pay attention to the details, that we would put God first in the work of his church as our priority, And obedience in that sense is to hear God's word and to act accordingly. Somebody said obedience is following God's commands his way, right away, all the way. Do your job. Obedience is expected of a servant. Now think about it this way. If you show up for work on time, I'm just talking about on a routine basis, it's unlikely that your boss is going to pat you on the back for showing up at work on time. You know why? Because you're supposed to show up for work on time. That's part of the deal that you signed up for when you took the job. That's what responsible people do. They show up for work on time. That's your role. And in the same way, when we do what God tells us to do and we follow his commands, what we're doing is living out of obedience. We know God is going to bless us. We know that his goodness is far greater than anything we could ever do. But we're desiring obedience rather than seeking something else beyond that. And I remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the story is recounted of how Saul chose to keep the Amalekite king Agag alive and took plunder from the battle rather than destroying everything of the enemy as God had commanded. And you remember Samuel confronted Saul, and Saul replied that he had obeyed the Lord. His version of the whole thing was that he had gone on assignment, they had destroyed the the enemy, and he had brought back the king, but the soldiers had kept the plunder, the best of it. And the reason that they had kept the plunder was so they could sacrifice the sheep and the cattle to the Lord at Gilgal. 
And Samuel answered him in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22. And he said this, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Listen to this, to obey is better than sacrifice. Do your job and obey what God has called you to. Disobedience is rebellion. Rebellion is sin. Disobedience is rebellion because it disregards God's word. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 24, anyone who hears his words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. So Jesus is telling us that obedience, it's like building your house on the rock. It's like, it's like laying a good, solid, strong foundation to your house so that you can live in it. Who doesn't want a strong foundation? And obedience is a strong foundation for our Christian lives because we're doing what God has called us to do. And Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He didn't equivocate on that. He didn't give us commentary that qualifies it. He simply says, John 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I find it interesting that the word keep in verse 15 is in the present tense. That's significant because it means ongoing obedience throughout our lives. Did you know that everybody who is genuinely born again will have a desire in their heart to pursue obedience to the end? And keeping the commandments pictures a guard or a watchman watching over a priceless treasure that has been entrusted to someone. Commandments points to the full range of divine expectations and not selective obedience. And his commandments are not burdensome for us. They are a blessing to us. And we can live in light of that grace, but we also see the responsibility that we have to be obedient to what he's called us to do. John 14 and verse 23, Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. James chapter 1 and verse 22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17 says, the world and its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. A faithful servant needs to be obedient. Third, A faithful servant needs to be humble. Look again in verse 10. We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Jesus says in summary of the whole thing, when he calls us to obedience and he calls us to a life of servanthood, the summary of the whole thing, when it comes down to it, is that we say we are unworthy servants. We didn't deserve any of it. It wasn't by our capacity or by our power. The very thought that we have breath to breathe and strength to exert and gifts to use and a life to expend, the only reason we have any of this is because God has given it to us by his good hand. And the summary is, we are unworthy servants. We've just done our duty. Now, at first glance, this seems a little bit confusing because is it not true that we are children of God and that God relates to us as a good father and and we as his children and we have that uh, father-child relationship? Yes, that's true. 
Is it not true that the Bible calls us uh, friends of God? Yes, that's, that's true as well. But here the phrase unworthy servants is used. An unworthy servant is someone who is absolutely dependent on God. It is all of grace. We are saved by grace. We serve by grace. And God will see us safely home by grace. We serve not because of our great ability or because of our qualification or because of our merit. We serve at the good pleasure of God. And I think the reason Jesus puts this here in verse 10 is because he was fully aware of the human inclination toward pride and self-sufficiency. And he wanted to call us to humility. So friends, this should be the posture of all disciples of Jesus. I think about Philippians chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus demonstrated for us the ultimate humility. And humility as a virtue is a lowliness of mind. Or you might think about it this way. Humility comes from having a proper perspective of yourself in light of who God is. So so it helps you have the framework to where self is not elevated, but God is elevated. And the Bible says that God gives grace to the humble but he opposes the proud. So let me ask you this question. Would you rather be in a posture where you receive grace or in a posture where God is opposed to you? The answer is obvious. We want to be in a posture where we receive grace from God. Humility is necessary for salvation in the sense that we have to realize we have no righteousness of our own to offer up to God. When we see his holiness and our brokenness, our undoneness, our lostness, and we see the grace of God and his righteousness, we humble ourselves to the point of faith. Isaiah says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And if we're going to have the posture of an unworthy servant, it's pretty much going to obliterate any idea of a works-based salvation. Like, how could anybody read this and, and see what Christ has done and somehow think that they can take credit for their salvation? How could anybody look at this and think that, yes, maybe we're saved by grace, but now we've got to work to keep it. It's my obedience that is keeping my salvation. Friends, that would negate the necessity of the cross. We would be saying to God that somehow we're adding something to our salvation. We cannot add anything to our salvation. Our obedience is not so that we can gain salvation or so that we can keep salvation. Our obedience is an act of an unworthy servant because we have been saved. Period. It's in response to what God has done. Not so that we can gain it. 
And I believe humility is necessary for a life of service to God, and it affects you how you live every single day. How you treat your family, how you interact with your coworkers and your neighbors, how you serve in the church. Paul's life is an excellent example of this. He had it all from a religious standpoint uh, before he came to know Christ. He was in a position of privilege, and yet he was radically saved. And when he was radically saved, his summary of the whole deal was, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want something to boast in, boast in Jesus Christ. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he came to the church, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So how is it that we've gotten so far away from this, even in Christian circles, where people are elevated and we exalt people to where they're the point of the whole deal? That's the opposite of what Christianity is. People are minimized and God is exalted. God is praised. That should be our heart's attitude. And it comes from a heart of humility. A desire to honor God above anything else. I was talking to a professional gentleman here recently at an event that I was at who had transitioned jobs and he had worked for a uh, extremely well-known pastor for over a decade and if I said the pastor's name the majority of you would know who it is and it's in a positive light Uh, but I won't because I forgot to ask permission to share this story that he was sharing with me in the conversation and this particular pastor, in reference, is, is on radio and television and has written books. I mean, he's very prominent. And this man that I was speaking to said, I've been up close with a number of well-known people in the Christian circles. He said, let me just tell you, they're not all humble. I could bear testimony to that. I've been up close to some people that shocked me at times, what they were really like. But here's what he followed with in reference to this particular pastor that he had worked with for so long. He said, the one thing that struck me about him from the outset was his humility. And he said, he's genuine and he's always that way. What a great testimony that might be of us. They were simply humble in the sight of God, a posture of humility, and that we're always that way. Is that how people close to you would describe you? A faithful servant needs to be humble. So here's our prayer in closing. Lord, help us be faithful servants. Lord, help us be faithful servants. How can that be a reality for us? Evaluate your motivation for why you do what you do. If you ask the Spirit of God search your heart and to show you why you're doing what you're doing. He'll evaluate your motivations for you. But you know what he'll do when he does that? He'll not condemn you, but he will correct you if you need correcting. And when you get your motivations in line, you make a commitment to obedience. We need a whole lot more people would be willing to say without qualifying it, Lord, here I am. I'm your servant. 
Use me however you see fit. And then humble yourself in the sight of God as you do that. And when you humble yourself in the sight of God, God will give you grace. Grace upon grace to live the life that he's called you to live. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. So we go toward our prayer time and then a closing song. I don't know what all the spiritual needs are here in the room or those who are listening otherwise. But God does. Maybe there's somebody who, if you're honest, you would say, I've never come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I need to embrace Jesus, the good news, and be forgiven and saved. The Bible says if you will confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He's calling you to himself. And then Christian servants, I'm so grateful for the many, many faithful people in this church who carry the load. And my prayer would be that more and more would be encouraged to do their job and to be found faithful. God, we're grateful today that though we are nothing in you, we have been blessed super abundantly. That we've been called to know you by faith and to serve for your glory. Lord, help us to be faithful servants. Help us to run the race well, to persevere to the end, and to demonstrate ourselves as faithful because you're worthy. And by your grace, we pray that that would be true. Use this message today to remind us in the days ahead that as opportunities are presented to us, in reality, there are none that are beneath us. If we look to Jesus, who willingly humbled himself, how could we ever think that there was anything beneath us? And Lord, may our lives reflect the humility of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.